Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, April 28th. Today's podcast focuses exclusively on features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm Jay Doherty. And I'm Megan Oftermat. And here are this week's feature stories. The Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space is an outpost for sustainability in the Lower East Side. WFUV's Shana Walsh visited the iconic landmark to see how they're celebrating Earth Month. This is a revised story featuring a correction. We misidentified Bill Weinberg of the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space in a previous version. We sincerely apologize. Here's Shana Walsh. April is Earth Month, and across the city, museums and organizations are hosting a range of different events. I visited the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space in the Lower East Side to find out what activities they held in honor of Earth Day and Earth Month. The museum runs out of a converted squat space, and they raise awareness about sustainability and the history of environmental activism. Bill DePaula is the co-founder and director of the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space. We wanted to show all these grassroots activities that really changed the whole city and probably the whole East Coast. So you take these urban people and put them in an environmental setting in our hopes that they'll educate themselves. DePaula has been an activist for 30 years. During this time, he founded Time's Up, an environmental group that works to improve New York's green spaces. The organization has been involved in the formation of many green projects in the city. They implemented composting initiatives, created auto-free spaces and bike lanes, and have been working to protect community gardens. Tapala says the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space honors the work accomplished by Time's Up and other environmental groups. Bill Weinberg is a volunteer and an original member at the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space and Time's Up. He says environmental activists have changed the landscape of the city. The existence of bicycle lanes and community gardens and so on are uh, the fruit of activist struggle, generations of activist struggle. Weinberg leads the museum's weekly historical tour of the Lower East Side. His tour was also featured in the schedule last weekend when the museum celebrated Earth Day. He says most people are unfamiliar with the history of environmental activism in New York. In the 1970s, when there was, you know, all of this abandoned property, all these vacant lots around the neighborhood due to the urban blight and the, you know, the the crisis of the 1970s. But environmental activists stepped in to transform these lots into public spaces. People started turning these, you know, um, unsightly and dangerous vacant lots into pleasant community gardens where people could grow vegetables together, reconnect with their neighbors and have cookouts and picnics and fiestas and begin to restore a sense of community in this neighborhood. There are now over 600 community gardens in New York City, which have been protected and cultivated by environmentalists for years. And for Earth Day this year, the museum hosted a number of events to honor those spaces and to educate people about the importance of sustainability. The events included a bike repair workshop, a medicinal workshop, a community garden tour, a sailing class, and various crafting and music activities. The events ran collaboratively with organizations and community gardens across the Lower East Side. One of the community gardens that was highlighted on the tour is the 9th Street Community Garden. Tom O'Neill is a member here, and he says this place changed his life. To have a green space like this uh, offers uh, peace, quiet, tranquility, a space to just be um, and to watch how the world actually works as opposed to a human-developed space like a city. Tom celebrated Earth Day at the 9th Street Community Garden this year. It's a really good way to kick off the season and to uh, remember that we are all on one planet and all trying to make it work. 
The work of the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space continues long after Earth Day festivities wrap up. They'll be holding workshops, tours, and events throughout the year. DePaula says it's important they raise awareness beyond Earth Day. It does help sometimes bring new people in, but we see Earth Day as every day. With WFUV News, I'm Shana Walsh. That was WFUV Shana Walsh reporting from the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space. For more information about their programming and events, visit morusnyc.org. When we think about whales on the East Coast, our minds usually jump to places like Cape Cod or Nantucket. But, Jay, these marine animals, they're New Yorkers, too. Yeah, WFUV's Isabel Danzis has more on the growing whale population in the metropolitan area and the challenges they face. In the Big Apple, Gotham whale has their eyes on these huge sea mammals. Gotham whale is a research and advocacy group aimed at teaching New Yorkers about marine conservation and the whales in our own backyard. There are over 30 marine species, including whales, that call the New York, New Jersey bite home. That's the shore and water that stretches from Cape May, New Jersey to Montauk Point in Long Island. We believe the whales are coming to the area is the abundance of their prey fish, which is called menhaden. And so these super large schools of menhaden, I mean, the size of a football field, um, are attracting the whales to come here to dine. And clearly, they're communicating somehow that the food here is just so abundant. That was Sarah Ryan Hudson, an environmental attorney and the director of advocacy at Gotham Whale. She says the area off the coast of New York and New Jersey didn't always attract whales. But today, many whales are returning year after year. And the organization knows this because of their pioneering data collection method. They ask everyday people to keep their eyes on the water and to inform them if they see any whales. It's called citizen science. They then add that data to a big catalog of whales in the area. And because of that cataloging, in 2021, the organization documented the first mother humpback whale to bring her baby to the area. And then in 2022, the organization saw the baby return alone. And so that's indicative of, um, you know, mother humpback whales teaching their young that this is a feeding area. And so um, by doing this citizen science and by doing this humpback whale cataloging, we're able to see those trends. Hudson says that citizen science is an effective way to collect data, but it also encourages everyday people to get involved with the whales. And citizen science enables us to use the power of community to ask people to keep their eyes on the water for us and collect this information in a cost-effective way. And um, it also brings people into the work in a way where they can connect with it and be involved with it and care about it in a way um, that's deeper. Hudson says citizen science also brings people closer to the research and the whales themselves. She says once people identify a whale, Gotham whale can then inform people about where that whale came from based on their past research. It helps people connect to them on that deeper level of like, here's this whale's life story. Um, this is, here's what we know about it. And we, we find that, that people get really interested in knowing that we're able to tell individual whales apart. And then also they get really excited to know, you know, about them and learn more about them. However, despite the increase in whales in the area, these creatures also face serious issues. 
Offshore wind activity are growing louder after two more whales were found dead in the past two days. Another dead whale has been discovered on a beach in our area. Authorities say the 20-foot-long humpback whale was found washed ashore in Brigantine, New Jersey yesterday. It's not so much the number, but the pace of whale deaths that's concerning scientists. Federal environmentalists confirm 23 dead whales have washed up on the East Coast shore since December. And as of this afternoon, another dead humpback whale is drifting towards the Jersey Shore. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, 16 whale strandings have occurred between December and March 2023 on the east coast of the United States alone. Ten of these strandings have been in the New York, New Jersey area. According to Rob Giovanni, founder and chief scientist at the Atlantic Marine Conservation Society, whale strandings and deaths have been on the rise since 2016. At the time of, of my initial assessment of this, it was October 2017, and at that point in time, um, we looked at the frequency of strandings for that year, and we were seeing a, an average of a whale stranding every 63 days. By the end of that year, we were seeing an average whale stranding uh, on an average of 28 days. And that's kind of what carried us through for the, for the next couple of uh, years, is that we started to see this, this large increase. In March. Dia Giovanni talked about whales in the New York, New Jersey area during a webinar hosted by the New York League of Conservation Voter Education Fund. His organization responds to stranded whales and other marine life. They also try and assess the causes of death. And while sometimes the cause of death is hard to know, disease and vessel strikes are common culprits. Overall, Gotham Whale and other organizations work to try and keep whales safe. Keeping the New York, New Jersey bite safe is important because in addition to being a home for some animals, it is also a spot for animals just passing through. For WFUV News, I'm Isabel Danzis. That was WFUV's Isabel Danzis talking about whales off the coasts of New York and New Jersey and how local organizations are working to keep them safe. WFUV's Community Dialogues is a program for frank discussion about race, racism, and racial justice. And in this episode, WFUV's Jaya Joyce sat down with Luis Trinchet, Chief Housing Officer at the Acacia Network, one of the largest Hispanic-led nonprofits in New York. They discussed the organization's affordable housing portfolio and Governor Hochul's plan. Acacia, on the affordable housing side, emphasizes primarily supportive housing on everything everything that is affordable. We have a, a transitional housing portfolio as well, but mainly we're talking about between joint ventures and 100% owned properties, etc. We're talking about 4,000 units of affordable housing. As a provider of affordable housing, I know that Acacia applauded Governor Hochul's plan to create 800,000 new homes, but is urging the governor not to abandon the current affordable housing stock. Why is this? That was a great point, and uh, the reason being that many of the buildings, they are they have aged. It's as simple as that. And then, as you very well know, operating expenses for, for these buildings are, are just through the roof. So since a decent portion of this affordable housing stock in New York City is managed by nonprofits, how do these organizations like Acacia pay for these projects? 
Well, that's that's uh, that's a critical a critical aspect. The financing side of it is is an adventure to say the least. So a few options. Uh, if the buildings have reserves available, operating reserves, replacement, uh, replacement reserves, etc., that is one funding source for these uh, repairs and, and maintenance in every development. The other thing is going through the council members, looking for resolute uh, funding sources. The other thing is exploring refinancing options in many in many of the uh, tax credit projects that we may have. Talking to talking to investors, uh, conversations with the other uh, public agencies. Could we get additional rent? Could we have the existing rent increased uh, depending on the program that the project is participating in? So the, the way to look at this is is very simple. On, on one side is a revenue. On the other hand is is the expense so the revenue is essentially rent either from the tenant or any commercial space that the buildings may have so increasing rent that is one option and on the operating side which is perhaps the most uh, critical one because once you build you have extremely long compliance periods we're talking about 30 to 50 years uh, that the projects must be operating so we need we need an operating subsidy that is simply crucial in order for these projects to maintain its uh, their financial viability. And I know you touched on this already, but what is the state of New York City's current affordable housing stock? It's 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 uh, needs we need more housing. It's I, we completely agree with that. And the other thing is we need to repair the existing housing. Most of the repairs. We're talking about facades. We're talking about old elevators that are constantly breaking down. We are talking about the roofs. We are talking about uh, uh, turning units over. Uh, just to give you an idea, in some cases, one unit, one unit, uh, it would cost between thirty to forty thousand dollars to turn it over. And he, when you look at the rent side of it, you are charging what, six hundred, eight hundred dollars uh, per month. How long will it take in order for that unit to be profitable? So that that math is the one that we need to be doing on a daily basis in order to make sure that these these projects are viable both both to the landlord and of course to the tenant who is the ultimate beneficiary in each in each one of these developments. One thing that I I believe that we need to do is simplify. For instance, in New York, both at the city level and the state level, there is a barrage of funding sources for construction. Uh, however, these programs are completely misaligned. So we need to align the objectives, the requirements, the timelines in each of the programs. Another thing will be just to reduce the number of programs. So simplification. Uh, eliminating the red tape, eliminating the bureaucracy, etc., and reducing the number of programs, both on the construction side and on the operating side, I would say this is fundamental. That was WFUV's Jaya Joyce talking with Luis Trinchet from the Acacia Network. This month, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture held their annual Black Comic Book Festival to celebrate black comics and graphic novels. WFUV's Leah Mallory went to the festival to talk to curators, artists, and visitors to hear about why this celebration of Black comics is so meaningful to them. 
The Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture held their 11th annual Black Comic Book Festival this month. The event, which is also referred to as Shomcom, celebrates black comics and graphic novels and allows fans to engage directly with a range of content that is black and POC owned. Visitors are welcome to participate in panel discussions, workshops, cosplay showcases, and can purchase any of their favorite comics. John Jennings is a professor and storyteller. He co-founded the event more than 10 years ago when he and some friends decided to put their talents together. Now, the Black Comic Book Festival is one of the largest events at the Schomburg Center and plays a key role in helping advance the careers of new artists. There's a lot of people whose careers have blossomed because of the space. Like you have people who are now really doing great work and, and who are, have a, a viable career because of the Shamba, because of being there and being able to make a living and people for, to see their work. The Black Comic Book Festival does something else important. It showcases positive Black representation. It's really important for people who are from various backgrounds to see themselves reflected in society that they participate in. There's also this thing as far as like normalizing the idea of black heroism and a black joy and a black lives as well. It's super important that the kids who are going to the Schomburg Festival, for instance, will never have to know what it's like to not be the subject of a story. T.J. Sterling, a committee member and exhibitor at the festival, agreed. We got a chance to talk leading up to the event. You know, we want to make it really a regional hub for black creative expression as well as economic opportunity for independent publishers and we really want to get the work of those people into the hands of the readers and the people who consume that content on a regular basis. And Sterling says it isn't just about positive representation but also about authentic representation. It's really true and authentic representation in all forms of fantasy, sci-fi, sequential art, and media. I guess with the recent successes of Black Panther, Moon Girl, and Miles Morales, um, people really wanted to see more of that, and they want to see more authentic representation. This year, for the first time since the pandemic, the festival was actually held in person. So after my chat with Sterling, before the event, I headed over to the Schomburg Center to check it out for myself. Waves of people filled the space, shuffling their way between exhibits and tables filled with comics, posters, stickers, t-shirts, and more. Behind every table stood a vendor, smiling brightly as they shared their work with each spectator. Making my way through the crowd, I stopped at the first table I saw, and to my delight, it belonged to TJ Sterling. Sure, absolutely. So um, this is uh, the Ray Comics booth. Essentially, we have five different, four different stories. We've got Joystick Angels, we have Okamas, Shattered Visions, and Okamas Dark History. Sterling started his own comic company called Ray Comics. The booth was filled with an array of sci-fi and dystopian future comics. Can you just tell me why um, comics are meaningful to you? Yeah, to me, comics are like the absolute best way to tell a story. And it's really like if you want to create something new. Um, and it's also really the gateway to other things like video games, um, movies, TV shows. It all starts with this sequential narrative. While Sterling's booth included science fiction, there are a handful of different genres represented, like at writer Jeff Carroll's booth, who I found upstairs. Horror Streets, Halloween Wars, 
it pits my leprechaun, which is a black leprechaun, against a black headless horseman. When I was in my 20s, I used to be a substitute teacher. We were doing a field trip, and it was in a remote location, and we had to cross land that had had slave revolts. So the kids on the bus were sleeping, and so I made up a story about, uh, I said, you didn't know the first the headless horseman was originally a black person. And it was a whole snap, and then I knew I had them, and I talked about how if you fell asleep while traveling over land that had had slave revolts, you could be possessed by the spirits of the former slave owners. And then I finally was able to publish the story. And stories like this continue to draw on people of all ages. Tiffany, who I ran into on that same floor, brought her young son from upstate to check out the festival. I like comics because I like the stories, because it kind of pulls you away from reality, but also helps you to get through it. But Tiffany didn't just come to the festival to read comics. She wanted her son to experience this specific space. It's really important to expose my children to people that look like them, that are successful, that are entrepreneurs, that are creatives, because where we are, we don't always get to see this. The teenagers visiting the festival felt the same way. I'm here because I want to see black spaces that are centered around comics and sort of uh, be able to experience that experience places where I'm not usually catered to, just like, I'm out here to have fun, to see what's there, to get prints that look sort of like me, so yeah. That's Jessica. She was with her friends Leilani and Kiana. They're high school students in Brooklyn. And why is this meaningful to you? I think for me, it's mostly an affirmation that we as black people and people of color can be successful. And I think that's something that we need in our life. It's meaningful to me because it um, it's one of the things that make me, thank you, it makes me super happy that we're going outside and I'm able to go in spaces where my people are, see myself and things I like the most, such as comic books and mangas, and I just feel super happy. Honestly, I just think it's really important to be, like, especially for younger people, to see that no career or no sort of job is barred just because of what you look like. We kind of, like, are, it's like hammered into our head, like, oh, especially growing up, like, oh, black people can't do this. Black people can't go into the comic book field. Like, black people can't be successful cosplayers. Like, but I feel like it's important for us to know that there is a community for us, by us, that lets us know, like, hey, we can do it. We're here. We've been here. Like, I just think that's really important. Whether the visitors were children, teenagers, or adults, it looked like the Black Comic Book Festival was achieving the original goals co-founder John Jennings laid out, providing a space where Black comic book lovers can see themselves reflected in the stories as authentic, as joyful, and even as heroes. With WFUV News, I'm Leah Mallory. That was WFUV's Leah Mallory at the 11th Annual Black Comic Book Festival. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews just like the ones you heard exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Megan Oftermat. And I'm Jay Doherty.